This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. We're going to go to Luke chapter 6 tonight, Luke chapter 6. If you're not used to being in church, you're probably like, okay, how do they find that? There is a pew Bible, and if you want to look it up, it's page 790 where we're going, okay? So I did the work for you. There's a pew Bible uh, in the rack in front of you, black cover. Pastor, I asked Garrett, he assumed they're all the same, right? So yeah, so that, uh, that number should be right. 790 is the page. We're going to go there tonight. Oh, I'm reminded about my phone. You know, make sure you quiet your phone, and uh, that's always a good idea. All right, make sure that's quiet. Yeah, it is. All right. John, uh, Luke chapter 6. I'll tell you why we're going here tonight. I got thinking the other day, what is the most dangerous place on earth? Now, Chicago might come to mind, <laughs> Baltimore, you know, Los Angeles. But seriously, what's the most dangerous place on the planet? Every one time we had a missionary, um, Roger Bergman, he's a missionary to Spain, but he was telling us about a buddy he knew that was in Australia. And he said, did you know that Australia has seven of the ten deadliest varieties of snake? And he said, one of my colleagues one time was up on the, the, the uh, fence, the um, brick wall, block wall surrounding his missionary house, the, house there. And he saw a snake in the backyard. And he's swinging at it with a shovel. And somebody said, brother so-and-so, what are you doing? He said, I'm trying to kill this snake. He said, that's an Australian adder. If that thing bites you, there's no... There's no um, Antidote for it. You will die instantly. Seven of the ten deadliest varieties of snake live in Australia. So I thought, well, maybe I don't want to go down under after all. I definitely want to go down under. You know, so then I thought about my sister and her husband are missionaries and uh, have served the Lord in Indonesia. I thought about Indonesia back in 2004. There was an earthquake there. It was like between 9.1, 9.3 on the Richter scale. Caused a tsunami, and you might remember... I jotted it down, it seemed like an incredible number. 280,000 people died in that tsunami. I thought about, well, what about, um, you know, one of the African countries being in Africa, you got lions and crocodiles and, and snakes. I was out on a safari one time in Kenya. Um, they said, what is the most dangerous animal in Africa? The answer surprised me. Do you know what it is? Hippopotamus, yeah. And I was, at the time, I was traveling as a college representative to missionary schools around the world. So I, I told these kids, yeah, they told me this on the safari. And one girl said, oh, yeah. She said, my dad's here in the oil industry. We're from Europe, and we live uh, right, on the, right on the river. And she said, one day we heard these European people floating down the river behind our house. They were on inner tubes. And all of a sudden, this woman said, I think I'm stuck on a rock. Next thing you know, whoom, the rock came up and chomped her in half. The rock was a hippo. She said, I saw it happen in my backyard, a woman died. Man, I, where's the most dangerous place? Just in February, a couple months ago, you know, in Turkey and Syria, they had those earthquakes that took over 40,000 lives in no time. It might be hard geographically to pinpoint and say, this is the most dangerous place, but I know where it is. I know where it is. And you're sitting in it. Good News Baptist Church, nice name for the most dangerous place on earth. Why would you invite me to this place? Well, let me explain my answer. It's tied into the parable that Jesus gave us. We'll read the parable, then I'll explain why I'm calling this. And the message is entitled, The Most Dangerous Place on Earth. Luke chapter 6, I'll begin in verse 46, and we'll go down to the end of the chapter. Don't worry, that's only verse 49. Not a long section tonight, but Luke 6, 46 Again, you want that pew Bible, 790 is the page number. Verse 46 says, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me, heareth my sayings, and doeth them, I'll show you to whom he's like. He's like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So why would I say you're sitting in the most dangerous place? The most dangerous place is to be hearing the word of God but not doing it. 
whether that's a Bible-preaching church, kids in a Christian school, a family where you're taught the Word of God, to sit under the teaching of God's Word but not do what God says. That's the most dangerous place. So let me break down this parable into three areas with you tonight. We'll start with this. Number one, the contrast between the hearers. The contrast between the hearers. Interesting how Jesus introduces this parable. Verse 46, why call you me Lord, Lord? The word Lord means boss, the one who calls the shots. You know, like today we have the term landlord. Okay, that came from feudal society. You remember when there were serfs and lords and the lords were the property owners, the serfs were the people that worked the property and they got the benefit of staying on the property. And, and so it's somebody who has ownership and therefore can call the shots. And the Lord says, why do, why do you address me as kurios, Lord, Master, if you don't do the things which I say? I think most of us when we pray say, dear Lord. Interesting, he, you know, he emphasized saying our Father which art in heaven. A lot of us pray that way, but it's just kind of like easy to say, dear Lord. But he said, why do you call me that if you don't obey me? So he then gives a contrast. And probably most, most of you know a parable is a, um, parable's an earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth. After my dad died, I found these notebooks. He had written out scripture by hand. And I said to my mom, what was dad doing here? She said he'd memorize scripture and then he'd write it out by hand to see if he got it word perfect. I said, mom, most of what dad wrote out here are parables. Why was he writing out parables? She said, yeah, that was really interesting. He worked at Home Depot, and she said often, you know, there would be a little tete-a-tete between people, little disputes or, you know, getting a fight. And he was the peacemaker. He'd say, oh, that reminds me of a parable Jesus told. They all knew Dad was a churchgoer. They said, parable? What's a parable? That's an earthly story that would convey some heavenly truth. For instance, and he would quote it, word perfect. Their mouths would drop open. And they realized this guy knew the Bible. And so when they were going through tough times or troubles, guess who they went to talk to? The guy that knew the Bible. My dad was a missionary at a Home Depot. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, there's something powerful about having Scripture at the ready. So he gives a parable here. In verse 47, he says, Whosoever cometh to me, heareth my sayings, and doeth them, I'll show you to whom he's like. So he likens him to a man, builds a house, puts a foundation down, builds a house on a rock. But then in verse 48, he's, um, 49, he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did be vehemently, immediately it fell. The ruin of that house was great. Okay, so the contrast between the hearers. Let me start with this. A is similarity. First of all, let's go with the similarity. What's similar between the two men? Well, they're building a house. I mentioned my dad. He was a general contractor. And I, I worked with my dad through high school and into college, and I wish I'd gotten my dad's building skills. He didn't have the patience to teach me. I was the gopher, just do this and do that. But uh, I know when we got to a job, the first thing, he'd have the excavators come in and they'd clear the land, and then they'd have the masons come in and pour the concrete and then lay the blocks. And, you know, you didn't see that, but it's very important. There was a foundation laid there, okay? Um, but one thing all buildings have in common, well, see, see if you can figure out. It doesn't matter if it's a doghouse, a birdhouse, your house, God's house. There are at least some very basic, now think really, really simple, okay? Even think in terms of maybe a birdhouse or a doghouse. What are some things that would be true about a house? Can you think of some things a house would have? Yes. It's on the ground. Well, maybe a birdhouse wouldn't be. Oh. Yeah, okay, it's got to be tied in the ground somewhere because it doesn't float. Okay. Yeah, he, he says, I've got to have a foundation. Not necessarily. We're going to get to that. Support. Okay, like walls? Walls, okay, yeah. Door, entrance, okay. Okay, walls, door, what else? Yeah, I'm seeing back here. Y'all remember the song, The Wise Man Build His? And the, you remember, oh, you remember about the, uh, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, see all the people. Actually, this is not the church. This is the church. The people are the church, okay. You got one back there? Roof, yeah. Okay, so basics, roof, walls, door, at least, okay? What about the foundation? Well, if you build a doghouse, you ever build a doghouse in dirt, you know? So the, the similarity is structural. Walls, roof, door. Let me tell you, everybody has some kind of a life. Now, did you ever hear teenagers, this is youth night, I thought you guys would relate to this. You ever hear somebody say, oh man, come on, get a life. If you're talking to them, we would assume that they have a life. Otherwise, it's kind of scary that you're talking to the dead person, right? Well, so you guys tell me, what do we mean if you ever heard somebody say, get a life? What does that mean? You, obviously, they're alive. 
You know, Jeremiah, what's that mean? A what? A puppy? Oh, <laughs> that's what I heard. Oh, a hobby, okay. How about a quality of life? You know, some people don't have any rhyme or reason for their life. They're just kind of going through life and reacting to this or that. Quality of life, you know, you say get a life. All people have some similarities. Like, you come to church, okay, most people, you know, they, we don't dress up as much as we used to. But we dress up a little better. You know, you don't usually come to church in your gym clothes or your sweaty attire or paint or cement covered attire, right? You dress up, bring a Bible, in this kind of church, my kind of church, all right? You bring a Bible, you pick up the hymn book, you sing, okay? So on the outside, everybody looks pretty similar. But you know what the preacher doesn't see? You know what you don't see? What's in the heart. See, man looketh on the outward appearance, because that's all we can see. But God looks on the heart. And I've been in church sometimes, I'll be sitting in the back, and people have their phone. And I look, I, I know you can have your Bible on a phone, but I also am not stupid. And I've seen people on Candy Crush and Instagram and TikTok and whatever else in church. Outside, you can look like everything's fine. But God knows what's going on really down in the depths, doesn't he? I used to think, well, the wise man, that's the churchgoer. And the foolish man, that's the non-church girl. Like when you're driving to church on Sunday and you see all these people at the soccer fields or the shopping malls, you think, oh, the foolish people out there. Do well, no, he's not talking about them. The wise man and the foolish man both talk about the churchgoers. Yeah, because you see the similarity is structural. Okay, everybody's got a life, but the differences are foundational. B, differences. And what, what is, what's the foundational difference? Well, I put it down this way. One receives the word, the other rejects it. One nests upon the word, the other neglects it. One does as commanded, the other despises the commandment. Because notice the contrast in verse uh, 48, sorry, verse 47. Whoever comes to me, hears my saying, doeth them, he's obedient. I'll show you to whom he's like. He's like the guy with a foundation. Verse 49, but he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth. So what's the house represent? A life. What's the foundation represent? You might say, well, God's word. It's not just God's word. It's obedience to God's word. You can know lots of Bible, but not have a solid foundation. In fact, I'm afraid sometimes people in church listen to the Bible a lot like Charlie Brown's teacher sounded to her class. And what did she sound like, everyone? Womp, 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 womp. Sometimes we think, oh, the preacher just gets up there. and da, 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 da. Look, I'm not paid to blab. The, the, the purpose for the preacher is to instruct you and thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. Why? Obedience to the word is what brings a difference in your life. Obedience to the word is what will bring salvation to your soul when you believe the gospel. Be obey what God says. Repent and believe the gospel. Trust in Christ alone for salvation. You can know all about that, but if you haven't put your faith in him, it does you no good. So that's the contrast between the hearers. But I want you to see this in verse 49. We go back, he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth. Number two is the condemnation of the heedless. Condemnation of the heedless. Now make sure you spell that right or you'll end up with the story of Ichabod Crane, you know, the headless horseman. Okay, heedless, H-E-E-D, not H-E-A-D. Condemnation of the heedless. Verse 49, he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently, violently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So what does the stream represent here? It represents the troubles of life, the trials, the difficulties, oppositions, heart-rending things, tribulation, tough times. I was in um, Ponape back in um, 1991, and I was with uh, missionary Dalton Heath, who's with Worldwide New Testament Baptist Mission. I did not know Dalton Heath before that. Have any of you ever met Dalton Heath? Okay, so Dalton is the character. And um, I figured that out quickly. I'll, I'll fast forward after he got to know me. When I got engaged, my wife got a, uh, an engagement card from the Heaths. I didn't know who it was at first. She said, oh, honey, look, a confused old man sent us a sympathy card for our engagement. I said, what was the confused old man's name? She said, um, Dalton Heath. I said, he's not confused. It was deliberate. Uh, he sent a sympathy card to my 
fiance when we got married when we got married or got engaged. So I was I was staying at their house and I was supposed to be in Pohnpei, Micronesia for uh, two and a half days. I ended up being there for five because we hit, got hit by a massive typhoon. A typhoon is a Pacific hurricane. You know, I'm from, I, I, I say I'm from, I spent a lot of time in Florida, was a resident in Pensacola for a long time. I can tell you this, I lived through some really big hurricanes. In the U.S., if we get a Category 5 hurricane, that's massive, right? And that's 150 miles an hour or more. The hurricane that came through down there was 200 miles an hour, and it was a direct hit. And I remember I was, uh, you know, we're on this tiny little island out in the middle of nowhere, and I said, are, are we going to be okay? He said, we'll be fine. He said, we have a blockhouse, we've got a generator, we've got good shutters built to withstand this. And that night, somebody had given him some mangrove crab from the mangrove swamp, uh, from mangrove uh, trees in the, and uh, among the trees uh, in the, in the uh, ocean. And we dined nice. We had candlelight dinner and generator kicked on all night. You could hear debris hitting the roof, but we weathered it. I'll tell you, when we went out the next day and we opened up those shutters, it looked like a war zone. And I remember Brother Heath said, well, I want to get around the island. He, was, um, he had started Palakur Baptist Church there. And he said, I want to get around the island and check on some of our people. And we went down by the seashore. And there had been some houses built there. They were made out of bamboo poles with banana thatched roof built right in the sand. Can you imagine what that looked like? Turned sideways, roofs ripped off, torn to shreds. You know, the house we weathered the storm in, we weren't hurt at all. Block house built on a solid foundation. But those little fishing houses built right on the sand didn't have a chance. Tidal surge came in, tore them all to pieces. That's what a lot of people's lives are like. Listen, you, you can have a pretty decent life until the storms come. But when storms come, they'll really reveal what's underneath Think about foundation. You don't see foundations. They lie below the surface. But I will tell you, a foundation makes the difference in any storm. Okay, so what's the condemnation of the heedless? Well, we're going to jump over to James chapter 1. I'm going to give you three places in Scripture that tell us the danger of a person who does not heed the Word of God. Uh, you got the Pew Bible. It's page 932. Okay, 932. James chapter 1. First danger is self-deception. Self-deception. James 1, I'm going to start in verse 22, go 22 through 25. James 1, 22 through 25. But be a doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. Now, what does the word glass mean there? Yeah, it's like a looking glass. Remember Alice in Wonderland went through the looking glass? Okay, He's beholding himself in a glass, looking in the mirror. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway, right away, forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, that's the word of God. It's the law that will set you free. Whoever looks in the perfect law of liberty, and continueth there, and he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed, in his obedience. Okay, so think of this, teenagers. Your alarm goes off in the morning. And you wake up, and if you're like me, I am not a quick out of bed. I am not like, you know, Opie in the morning. Woohoo! Okay, like, I get up, and the lights come on, and oh, yuck. Okay, crust in the eyes. First thing I always do is rinse my hair out because it's all plastered to one side, you know, and get out a toothbrush because if it's green when you're breathing on the mirror, you know something needs a toothbrush. And uh, so, you know, and then I'll shave, and, you know, girls' other foundation can no man lay, so you put it on there, and... Okay, so you kind of get it all put together. Have you ever done this where you're really tired and although you looked in the mirror, you didn't do anything about it and you go down to the breakfast room table and your mom says, honey, did you look in the mirror? Yes, mom. You did? Okay, looking in the mirror is not just, ah, shut the light off and go away. When you look in the mirror, it tells you something needs to be corrected, right? So you pull out a brush or a comb or pick or shovel, whatever it is you use, okay, and uh, you fix it. The mirror shows what needs to be changed. I think I look in the mirror, I don't know, three, four, five times a day, depends. When you're up in front of people, you don't want to be distracting. So I, I make sure at least I'm, you know, I, I am what I am to work with, but at least it's not going to be distracting, right? When God talks about looking into the perfect law of liberty, he says, okay, you see what needs to be changed, you change it. How many of you have ever made a change in your life just 
by directly something that you read in the Bible, from personal Bible study. Anybody have a testimony like that? That should be normal for us. That's why it's so important to read the Word of God. But not just read it, heed the Word of God. Be a doer. It's interesting, deceiving themselves. The Greek term is paralegizomai, and I mentioned that to you because para, like parallel, and legizomai is the term for logic. It means lined up next to what's logical. Have any of you guys done, um, worked on your driver's ed yet? Okay, how many of you have had to do parallel parking yet? Okay, you all remember doing parallel parking on your test? Our favorite, right? I live in Kansas City now. I remember taking my girls downtown Kansas City at midnight because the traffic is quiet in Kansas City at midnight. So we practiced parallel parking in the city without all the traffic. It was good, right? I have a fifth-wheel trailer that's 43 feet long and a truck that's 22 feet long, so a unit over, you know, 65 feet. And uh, I, I, I went for a CDL, and I remember I had to do parallel parking with my truck and trailer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Never again, right? Okay, so... Parallel means lined up beside. What does he mean? You deceive yourself. It's like being parked right beside. Here's the thing. You go to church, you think, I go to church. I'm there Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night. I'm there Wednesday night. You know, I hear the Bible all the time. Hearing it's one thing. Heeding it's another level altogether. And sometimes we think, I don't know, I had my kids in church, and what happened to them? Look, just hearing the Bible is not enough. There's got to be a heart for the Bible. There's got to be submission to God tell you guys, it's, it's not good enough that you just come to youth group. It's not good enough that you're just in church. Same for adults here too. Well, I go to church. Wonderful. What do you do in connection with obedience to the word of God? That's the first and foremost priority when it comes to building a solid foundation, heeding the word. First danger is self-deception. If you can't trust you, how are you going to trust anybody else? Yeah, now, I will give a little caveat to that. You ever hear people say, oh, just trust your heart. Let me just tell you, that's the dumbest advice you'll ever give, okay? Why do I say that? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. So the Lord says, here's the remedy. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to what? Yeah, I don't understand it. Don't lean to your own comprehension. You trust him with all your heart. Okay, first danger is self-deception. Okay, let's go to Hebrews Chapter 6, page 925, Pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 6, 925. Uh, we're going to look at verses 4 to 6. Okay, we're going to go where angels fear to tread. Uh, this is one of those passages. This is what, a very challenging passage. It's one of the hard sayings of the Bible. In fact, there are a lot of commentators who will just skip this passage. Too controversial or too many, too many you know, differences of opinion. Let me just say something. I, I don't make myself out to be the world's preeminent theologian but I just know this the common person can understand the Bible and so if you're not sure of something let me let me just say this to you inspiration is perfect God gave the word by inspiration that's perfect interpretation is not perfect okay we can be wrong in some of our conclusions I'm the first to tell you I may not be accurate in this but I have studied out that I am comfortable I believe this is the accurate interpretation of the passage. Okay, so let me read it and then we'll talk about it. Hebrews uh, 6, 4. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Let me tell you first of all what it does not mean. Many argue that this is a passage that teaches that you can lose your salvation. I do not believe it's teaching that. Why do I say that? For, well, for one, a lot of the people that teach you can lose your salvation believe that if you do lose it, you can get it back. Well, you wouldn't be able to say that based on this passage because it says, once enlightened, taste of the heavenly gift, they fell away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. So if you try to use this to teach you can lose your salvation, you would have to say once you lost it, you could never get it back. But as I spoke last night, I think it was, in um, the message on um, John 5, or referred to John 5, he says, Verily, verily, I say to you, he that heareth my word, believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. So when you have everlasting life, you have it, well, if you lost it, could it be everlasting? You can't lose it if it's everlasting. In fact, he says, he is passed, perfect tense, is passed from death to life. You're already seated in the heavenlies. Once you're genuinely saved, you are forever saved. Okay? 
I don't believe it's talking about losing your salvation. And I could, if I had time, I'd, I could take you to lots of places to establish that. But let's stay on point here. Now, there are many good people who have varying interpretations on this, and I highly respect them. So let me just say, one of the common interpretations of this passage, well, it's in the context of talking about entering into the victorious Christian life, and it's those who never believe God to enter into the fullness of the abundant life, and they make a good case for it. I do not personally subscribe to that view, but I respect that view. Let me tell you what I believe he's talking about. I believe he's talking about, number, or letter B here, salvation despised. And I'll tell you why I believe that. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened. Okay, the word enlightened is like the light bulbs come on. And have tasted of the heavenly gift. That's not a word for sitting down for a full course meal, but it's like your mom said, hey, taste this chili. What do you think of this? You're sampling it. Okay, they've tasted the word of God. We're made partakers of the Holy Ghost, so they've experienced Holy Spirit conviction. They've tasted the good word of God. You know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And the powers of the world to come, so they've been convicted about eternity. If they fall away, if they shall fall away, to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. The word fall away, the words fall away, come from the word ephistomy. What is ephistomy? That is the root of our word apostasy. I grew up in an apostate church. I grew up in a church where historically they had known the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the ministers under whom I was trained had rejected it. Let me tell you what the ministers I was taught under believed. They did not believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They did not believe that he rose bodily from the dead. They did not believe in salvation by grace through faith. This was in a United Methodist church. Historically, Methodists were fiery preachers of the gospel. And, caveat here, there are Methodist churches today that will still preach the gospel. But the sad thing is that the United Methodist Church, by and large, abandoned the truth of God's word. I'm just speaking about them because that's what I grew up in. And said, no, we don't believe modern man believes in miracles or et cetera. Well, I don't really subscribe to what modern man thinks. I say God says, and it's so. So they knew the truth, but they rejected it. That's called apostasy. I'm convinced that what the Lord's talking about here is somebody who's been exposed to the gospel. They're hearing it. They're coming to conviction. And they come to a point where there's full comprehension, but then they willfully reject it. Why do I say that? Well, look at the next two verses. Uh, We read down to verse 6. For the earth, which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it's dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, is nigh to cursing, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we're persuaded better things of you and things that accompany, what? Salvation, though we thus speak. He goes from speaking about third person to second person. Okay, or I'm sorry, we are persuaded. Yeah, we, that's first person, persuaded better things of you. So he had been talking about they, 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 that's third person. But he said, we're convinced better things of you, that's second person. All that leads me to the conclusion, he's warning people, you can hear the gospel, you can know it, but if you've never received it, you're in danger of ultimately rejecting it. When does that come? I don't know. Only God knows that. God's all-knowing. But here's the point, and this is why I brought it up with youth night in mind. You guys have grown up in church, you've heard the gospel over and over. I didn't hear it until I was 10, the first time in my life. My sister didn't get saved until she was a freshman in a Bible, or no, sophomore in a Bible college. Uh, She went to Pensacola Christian with me, had not gotten saved in our Christian school. She heard it all the time. Prayed a prayer when she was a kid, but she admits, I just did it to make Dad happy. Rich, you prayed and got saved, so I thought, whatever Rich did makes Dad happy, I'll pray the prayer. No idea what she was doing. And she said, I was under conviction, I was miserable. I'm trying to live for God, and I'm not even a child of God. Chris was giving me that testimony tonight. He said, I made a profession as a kid, Rich, but when you were at my church in Hawaii, God had been dealing with me for four years that I needed Christ as Savior. You, you, you know, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can fool God none of the time. But I'll, show you, I'll tell you when it really comes to light is when storms come, tough times come. I, I want to plead with you guys. If you, if you have been playing the game, if you don't know the Lord or you don't know for sure, would you talk to Pastor Taylor? Would you talk to me? Would you talk to Pastor Asher? Talk to your parents. Let somebody help you. Your eternity is too long to say, well, I hope I'm saved. God says you can know that you're saved. Let's go over to 1 John chapter 5, because that's one of the places it says it, and our next verse is going to be found there. So there is self-deception. There is, in my opinion, salvation despised. Whether you use that text or another, you know there is a danger of knowing the truth but not 
embracing the truth. 1 John 5 is page 942, if you want that pew Bible. 1 John 5, look at verse 13. I, I'll mention this in passing. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The word there is to know as certainly as you know your own birthday or you know your own name. You can know it. If I ask you, do you know 100% for sure you'd go to heaven when you die? Your answer to that would tell me a lot about what you're trusting in to get you to heaven. If you asked me, Rich, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? I would tell you, I absolutely, positively do. Well, must be nice to be so confident. Well, let me tell you in the next breath, I don't deserve it for one second. In fact, I will be the first to tell you. Let me speak for Rich Tozer. If I got what I deserve when I die, I'd be in hell. That's what I know I deserve. But I'm not going to spend one second in hell. Because I'm going to get what I die, what I did not deserve. It's what Jesus Christ gave me. It's what the choir sang about tonight, his robes for mine. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. See, here's the gospel. Christ bore our sins. He took our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Think of it this way. Let's say you owed a multi-million dollar debt against God. We, we don't think we're that bad. Hardest people to see saved are religious people. They think they're good. The Lord said, I'm not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. I thought he said all have sinned. I thought he said there's none righteous. He did. If they don't see themselves the way he sees them, they'll never be saved. Hey, I'm talking to some of you tonight that maybe you're trusting in your good works to get you to heaven. Church I grew up in, we had, enough, we had this idea if we can somehow do enough good that maybe our good outweighs our bad, hopefully that'll get us into heaven. No, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So the scripture says, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So think about this. Let's say I owe multi-million dollars in debt to God. I have no capacity to pay that. Jesus Christ pays off my debt. Now, if he did that, that would put me at a zero balance. Okay, now I would owe nothing. But he did beyond that. He not only gave me the payment for sin, then he gave me his righteousness. You know what that means? He put me in the plus column to the multi-millions when it comes to righteousness. When God sees me, he sees me as redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't deserve to go to heaven, but I absolutely know I'll go to heaven because it has nothing to do with what I've done for Jesus. It has everything to do with what Jesus did for me. So the Bible says that you can know you have eternal life, and you might say, well, you know, I wish I could say that, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm trying. That's the problem. You don't get to heaven trying. You can only get to heaven trusting. Look at verse 16 now. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is, is sin and there is a sin not unto death. All right, let me talk number three here, condemnation of the heedless. We've seen self-deception. We've seen salvation despised. But then there's sin unto death. Sin unto death. What is the sin unto death? It's not a particular sin. It's not like if you do X, you're going to die. Is it adultery? Is it getting drunk? Is it blaspheming? Well, in the context, he says there's not a, there, there, rather, there is a sin not unto death. Let me ask you, what sins that you've committed were not unto death? <laughs> All of them, or you wouldn't be sitting here right now. So there's a sin not unto death. And then there's a sin unto death. So how do you know what's what? Sin unto death, I would liken it to this. Have, you've all heard the expression, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. Have any of you ever wondered, what does that mean, the straw that broke the camel's back? Okay. I don't know what the load capacity is for a camel. I'm sure it varies camel to camel. But you know, camels are beasts to burden. So let's say you're putting tent stuff on there and camping supplies and whatever else. You know, there comes a point, if you add one more bit of weight, the camel's going to collapse, right? The straw that broke the camel's back. Sin unto death is not if you do that, you're going to die. But it's, the Lord says, okay, that's enough. You see, here's the way God deals with his children. First, he reproves us, that's with his word. That's why your pastor makes time to have revival meetings like this. 
Because see, I don't, I don't know you all as intimately as your pastor knows you. So I have the freedom to preach stuff that you, you go to him and say, you've been talking to him? And I told you last night, I'm not talking to your pastor, I'm talking to your father. But you know, I, it's not personal when it's coming from me. But if you, know, if you throw rocks down an alley and you hear some dog yelp, you know who got hit, right? So God will convict at times. He reproves. But what happens if you don't respond to reproof? Then he chastens. Then there's the rod. Okay? Have you ever been disciplined by God? I'll tell you what, if you're his child, you've been disciplined by him at some point. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. It, you know, good parents discipline their children. God's the best parent. He'll discipline his children. But if we don't respond to reproof, and then we don't respond to the rod, then there's removal. There's a sin unto death. Proverbs 13, 13 says, Whoso despiseth the word should be destroyed, but he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. Okay, if you got destroyed, what's, what's that mean? You're not alive anymore. Proverbs 29, 1, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Okay, if you got destroyed without remedy, you're not here anymore. What's it mean, being often reproved hardeneth his neck? The hardening of the neck is like a, a horse that's refusing to respond to the bit and the bridle. You ever ride a horse? Use the reins to, to direct the horse, right? Stiff neck means I'm not budging. I know. Hey, listen, uh, if we're not careful, teenagers, you grow up in church, everybody knows how to put on the Christian face in the youth group. You know how to act a certain way when the youth pastor's around, when your parents are around, when the church people are around. And you know which of the teens in the youth group you can get away with showing the real you. But God had never fooled. It's not just for teenagers, that's true, it's for all of us. There's a sin unto death. I do not say he shall pray for it. I believe that's what Ananias and Sapphira committed in Acts chapter 5. They brought their, well, Ananias came first, and he brought money. Everybody was selling property and giving to the church. There was no command, you shall sell your property and give everything you have to the church. It It was a spontaneous act of love for God. They were all doing it. So Ananias brings money. He said, here it is, we're giving all. Well, he wasn't giving all. By the way, he didn't have to give all. There was, it wasn't a requirement. But the problem was he wanted to act like he was giving all. And Peter said, you, you haven't lied to men. You've lied to the Holy Ghost. And Ananias dropped dead. Three hours later, his wife shows up. I don't know what she was doing, but she shows up later. And they said, uh, do you give so much to God? Oh, yeah. You're all? Oh, yeah. They said, Sapphira the men who carried your husband's corpse out are coming in to get yours, and she drops dead. Are we going to see Ananias and Sapphira in heaven? I believe we are. I believe they committed sin unto death. You think that happens today? It's very interesting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that they that take the table of the Lord unworthily will drink to themselves damnation, not condemnation in hell. He goes on to say, For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. You know what sleep means? They died. Oh, you know, please do not jump to faulty conclusions here. Not everybody on a church prayer list is on there because of sin in their life. But I want to tell you, the biggest block of request on most church lists is sick people. Well, the first thing I want to do when I'm not feeling good is say, Lord, is there anything between you and me? Not all sickness is related to death. We know that. Uh, to uh, not all sickness is related to sin. I mean, distantly, yes. But I will tell you something. The Bible says if we judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. There's a lot of flippant taking of the Lord's table going on without self-examination. And Paul told the Corinthians, this is one of the reasons death was widespread. Now again, please do not go through the church list and think, well, they might have died. It's not your place to judge anybody else, but it is your place to say, hey, is there anything hindering my fellowship with God that might be hampering my health could sin unto death happen today I I believe one of my very dearest friends died sin unto death his name was Craig we were raised in New Jersey well I was raised in New Jersey Craig would later come back to where his dad lived in New Jersey Uh, Craig's mom and dad had gone through a divorce when he was a kid Craig moved out of the house and went down to Miami he was living a life of drug addiction and uh, finally he like the prodigal son came to the end of himself contacted his dad back in South Jersey said dad I'm tired of the life I'm living. Could I move in with you? 
His dad said, well, yes, Craig, but you know I'm a Christian. I go to church every time the doors are open. So if you want to come back, son, I'll take you back. Whatever, Dad, I, I'm, I, I'll do whatever. I'm coming home. So he came home. First time I saw Craig, he just had this cynical look on him. He just looked defiant. Next time I saw him, he, uh, not only his outward appearance was totally different, he went from, like, total drug addict look to a clean-cut guy. I found out he'd gotten saved, and his whole countenance had changed. And the next thing you know, his dad enrolled him in our Christian school, and Craig got on fire for God. And he was a senior, I was a junior. We had Bible studies at my house on Saturdays. We'd have eight or ten other kids come, and we studied the Bible. Our coach would have us give devotionals to our basketball team. He and I would take turns doing that. He was my go-to friend. Uh, after he graduated, he went off to Baptist Bible College in Clark Summit, PA. I graduated the year after that, went off to Pensacola Christian. We didn't see each other much. But I, I heard one weekend my friend Craig co came home and he was in rebellion against God. I didn't know this till later. Uh, he had gone to college and found the rebels. And by the way, every Christian college has them. And if you're one of them, they'll find you. And so he got in with the rebels. And um, I didn't know this, but Craig had gotten bitter along the way. See, his dad wasn't used to raising kids. And so when Craig moved back into the house, dad wanted Craig to know, we have rules in this house and I'm in charge. So in order to discipline his son, whenever he or his brother would do wrong, their dad would punch him. And their dad was built like an iron worker. What did I say, boy? Boom! Now, let me, just, let me just explain. That's not biblical discipline. Okay? The Bible says the rod and reproof give correction, give wisdom, and a child left to himself bring his mother to shame. But punching is not discipline. Okay? So Craig got bitter. Here's the problem. Yes, his dad was wrong, but Craig was also wrong. And in his rebellion... He came home one weekend and he got connected with a kid from my class that everybody knew was lost. His name was Dan. He told everybody, look, I'm going to hell and I don't care. Shut up. Don't talk to me about it. That was his attitude. Craig and Dan went out one weekend and got drunk. And um, there's, they're by a little creek where highway bridge goes across. And in his drunken state, Craig gets up on the, uh, the railing of the bridge he says, hey, watch this, Dan, and he dives off the creek. Well, the problem is the creeks are off the bridge into the creek. The creek's only about a foot and a half deep. So when he, dived, when he, when he dove off the uh, bridge abutment, snapped his neck. And listen, gang, my very dear high school friend drowned in a foot and a half of water. Of course, when I went back for class reunion at my Christian school later, some of my friends said, you heard what happened to Craig. Yeah, I heard. Rich, what about that? You guys used to do Bible study and give to, you think he was saved? I said, I absolutely believe Craig was saved. Yeah, but saved people aren't supposed to live like that. I said, yeah, exactly. The Lord said, Craig, that's enough. See, he reproves, and then he uses the rod, and then he'll remove if he won't listen. I fully believe I'll see Craig in heaven. But I believe, to use the military term, he got a dishonorable discharge. I, sadly, I could tell you four or five other stories that I know, not as intimately, but I know firsthand or secondhand. I could tell you other stories to illustrate that. Let me just say, I don't want any more sermon illustrations. And you don't want to be Brother Taylor's sermon illustration, teenager. Church family, you don't want to be Pastor Asher's sermon illustration. There's a sin unto death. But let's go back and finish up where we started, because I don't want to end on this note, okay? So we have the condemnation of the heedless. But finally, I want you to see the comfort of the heedful. The comfort of the heedful. Go back to verses 47 and 48. And again, uh, let's see, page number for you, 790, where we're going back to where we started. Verse 47, whosoever cometh to me, heareth my sayings, doeth them, I'll show you to whom he's like. He's like a man which built a house, dig deep, laid the foundation on a rock. When the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. Okay, so what's the heedful person? He hears the word and he heeds the word. He, he digests the word and then he does what he's heard. He's obedient to the word. He's not just an observer of the word, he's obedient to the word. So, what's the comfort of the heedful? Well, how does he become blessed? I wrote this down. A, he accepts grace in place of bitterness. A, accepts. A for accept. He accepts grace in place of bitterness. 
Uh, I mentioned the other night Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Follow peace, pursue peace. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. When you go through trials, let me tell you this, as one who has been through many trials, when you go through trials, you'll never be the same. You'll come out either better or bitter. But you will not be the same after you've gone through a trial. Better or bitter. You say, I, I hope I'm strong enough. No, no, look, don't look to you. Look to Christ. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Philippians 4.13. Jesus said, without me, ye can do nothing. John 15.5. Abide in me, I in you. That's to remain in constant fellowship with him. So accept grace in place of bitterness. B, he becomes grounded in the truth instead of battered about becomes grounded in the truth instead of battered about. Ephesians 4.14 says that you henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Psalm 1 verses 2 and 3 says uh, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law that he meditate. Remember, meditate, choose on the cud. He'll meditate day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. He's rooted like a tree next to a river. You see trees by the river, they never lack moisture. They never lack water. That's the person who's rooted in constant fellowship with God. He, you can count on He's got personal devotions. He's taken in sermons. He's responding to preaching. Is that you? That's the godly man. So he accepts grace in place of bitterness. He becomes grounded in the truth instead of battered about. And finally, he sees, and I'm going to use the word like look and see for letter C here. He sees the goodness of God in the midst of bad circumstances. Seize the goodness of God in the midst of bad circumstances. Second Chronicles 7, 3, he's good, his mercy endureth forever. Psalm 25, 8, good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 27, 13, I'd fainted unless I'd believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Psalm 84, 11, the Lord God's a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Lamentations 3.25, the Lord is good unto them, them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. Matthew 19.17, there's none good but one. That's God. And Romans 2.4, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Let me just say this to you. When you go through trials, you'll never come out the same. You'll either be better or bitter. So here's the summary statement. You must settle by faith the fact that God is good, for it will not be your feeling when the ferocity of the storm strikes. Settle by faith the fact that God is good, for it will not be your feeling when the ferocity of the storm strikes. I've, I've noticed this. Everybody I know who's ever been significantly used by God has been through some kind of storms, some kind of trials. The most usable per people are the people who've suffered. I, I don't know why that's the law of the kingdom, but it is. Except a corn of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And I remember when my wife and I went through our first real test, and well, second real test, after the murder-suicide at my church in 2000, three years later when we lost our third child, and I was up in Ohio preaching, and my wife is staying in Pensacola, Florida with my parents, because her mom and dad traveled all the time. Angela was sick with our baby, and she was four months into term, and went into preterm labor, and I'm off in Ohio, and my dear wife, 17 weeks into pregnancy, goes into the hospital and gives stillbirth to a little baby boy. And, and I want to tell you something. I felt so helpless. But as I cried out to God, said, Lord, I need you. He showed himself strong. And as we wept together in that hospital, I, I want to tell you something. God poured out grace on us. I can tell you this. We... Went through murder-suicide at my home church. Pastor's wife shot and killed their daughter. Took her own life. Went through the loss of our baby in 2003. My dad died in 2008 of, um, uh, we think, a blocked bowel. He was only 65 years old. My dad loved it. He was my best man in my wedding. I love my dad and mom. Um, and in 2012, my, sis, my, my wife's youngest sister, Sonia, died at age 34 of breast cancer. And th there have been more, but, you know, those are kind of the highlights. Uh, let me just tell you this for the record. I love God more than I've ever loved him. You say, well, you must be exceptional. No, I'm nothing. He's exceptional. See, he gives grace 
for your trial. And here's one final thought. Do not take up offense when somebody else goes through a trial. You don't get grace for the other guy's trial. You get grace for your trial. And so often we get bitter at God because we think, well, how could God do that to them? Whoa, hang on. God will pour out grace for their trial. He's not giving you grace for their trial. You just trust. We've got to become grounded in the truth or we're going to be battered about. You must accept by faith the fact that God is good for it will not be your feeling when the ferocity of the storm strikes. Folks, he's good. All the time, God is good. Would you stand with me? Thank you for your good attention tonight. There's much to be digested here, Father. I, I'm burdened for those who do not know the Savior. Would you bring them to the realization you have, you have specifically stated in the Word of God, I've written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, now you say we can know it, and we think, well, I don't know how I can know that. We either take our word or your word for it, and I sure will take your word for it. And if I'm a person here thinking, well, man, if I could know for sure that I'd go to heaven when I die, wouldn't I want to know that? I would certainly want to know that. Please draw to yourself any who may think, well, I'm trying to get there. I'm trying to be good, helping to see that's not the way we'll ever get there. We don't get saved by human efforts. We get saved by heavenly salvation. And then I pray for Christians. Help us to see it's, it's not sufficient to just come here preaching and say, well, I was good. We're to be doers of your word. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.